Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at cagerredox at gmail.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X at gmail.com. All right, today is December 28th, and I decided that I should probably get up a top 10 of 2022. I've been looking at some of the stuff that's come out in the mainstream sports media, and my top 10 is going to be different from a lot of other top 10s, including top 10s from some of our sports legal analysts who I think are looking at some of the same things I'm looking at and coming up with uh, some different conclusions and some different priorities. And as I did last year, I'm going to start with the honorable mention category, some things that some folks think ought to be on a top 10 list, but in my judgment, really aren't for a variety of reasons. And I'll explain as I go through this short list. The first honorable mention is the story that just came out recently, that the NCAA had hired Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker as the new NCAA president. And my most recent episode was on that decision. And I made the argument that this is really Mark Emmert 2.0. I, I don't see it as very consequential. And again, you have to view that higher in the context of the reduced role that the NCAA president has under this new constitution. The second honorable mention issue is the death of the independent accountability resolution process. I've spent some time talking about that issue, not so much in terms of the importance of that body in the infractions and enforcement apparatus at the NCAA, but what it really says about the inside decision makers like Greg Sankey, who has had a monomaniacal focus on killing the IARP. These people don't want any aspect of the voluntary regulation of college sports to have any true independence. And the IARP was a threat to the star chamber decision-making and iron-fisted control that the inside decision-makers want to have over the NCAA and every aspect of the regulation of college sports. The third honorable mention is related to the IARP. The IARP is on its way out. It only had five or six cases in its inventory to begin with. And I think all of those have been resolved except for the Kansas case. And those are all basketball related. Remember that this IARP came out of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball, which was looking at this quote-unquote scandal in college sports. And most of that conduct today, if it were couched in terms of nil payments, would be absolutely legitimate and even desirable. But back in 2017, 2018, it was viewed as a violation of federal criminal law. And the IARP is making its mark on its way out because in these decisions that came out this year, I'm referring to the Memphis decision. Again, all these are basketball related. Memphis, Louisville, and Arizona. We don't have Kansas yet. And of course, NC State came out in December of 20. 21. But in these cases, an important theme emerged with respect to the head coach responsibility. So much of the uncertainty in how these cases are going to be handled by the AARP circled around that single issue. And it appears to me that in reviewing those decisions, and they're lengthy and they're dense, and I haven't fly-specked each one, but I've read each one. And what jumped out to me was that the decision makers on these hearing panels concluded that so long as the institution and the program, in this case men's basketball, and the coaching staff had some kind of objective policies or practices that they could point to which showed intent to comply with NCAA rules, and the coaches got a free pass. There's no strict liability here. There's been some discussion about whether there should be in this transformation committee. I don't think that's going to happen. So the long and short of the IARP's work on that single issue is important going forward. And even though we don't have the Kansas decision yet, the precedent that's been set in the Memphis, the Louisville, and the Arizona cases makes it a certainty that Bill Self is not going to face any meaningful consequences. What this means going forward 
in other infractions cases involving big-time football and big-time men's basketball and women's basketball remains to be seen, but you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, head coaches in football, men's and women's basketball, and compliance uh, administrators all over the Power Five landscape are going to be coming through those opinions and putting in place the very Mickey Mouse compliance processes that seem so influential with the IARP. And then the head coaches get a free pass. It's, it doesn't matter what you actually are doing behind the scenes. It's the policies and practices you have in place to make it look like you have a genuine commitment to compliance. So let's go to our top 10. Coming in at number 10 is the Power Five and more particularly the SEC's takeover of the voluntary regulation of college sports through this constitutional makeover. I did a number of episodes on this constitutional makeover and also this transformation committee and what it really meant. And one of my episodes was titled Power Five Autonomy 2.0. And what, what this constitutional power grab was all about, and this ran through SEC interests and Greg Sankey and you had other powerful SEC interests that were involved in this. They basically wanted to finish off what they didn't get in autonomy in 2013, 2014. And the most important piece of that was infractions and enforcement. And as I go through this top 10, rather than trying to rehash some of the substance of the, these issues, I'm going to refer you back in the show notes on my bigamateurism.com website, the episodes that you can look to that I've done that, that treat these issues in some detail. But the Power Five and the SEC basically cut the NCAA national office off at the knees and the NCAA president as well. It rendered the NCAA Board of Governors nothing more than a symbolic yes board that has very little authority because one of the central purposes in this constitutional makeover was to send the most important authorities at the regulatory level down from the NCAA to the divisions, notably including infractions and enforcement. So the uh, Power Five get the infractions and enforcement piece they so desperately want. And as I'm going to explain as an independent item on my top 10 list and item number eight, the uh, Power Five have done very little with that new authority. So the bottom line is that the voluntary regulation of college sports is now controlled by the Power Five more broadly and by the SEC more specifically. Let's go to number nine. And that is the NCAA's interpretation of the Austin decision as expressed in the Johnson litigation. And remember, Johnson is a case under the Fair Labor Standards Act where athletes are suing their schools and the NCAA alleging that they are employees for purposes of the FLSA and are entitled to an hourly wage. That is an hourly wage law. I've talked quite a bit about that in prior episodes. I'll link to those in the show notes. But the thing that made my top 10 list that relates to that case is how the NCAA pitched the consequences of the Austin decision. And remember that Austin decision was an antitrust case that wound up being whittled down to education benefits. And the U.S. Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, said that the NCAA wasn't entitled to antitrust immunity, not judicially created antitrust immunity that they had to comply with our nation's free competition laws, and that the NCAA's cap on education benefits violated free competition laws, and that the district court's injunction permitting a very small, permitting, not requiring, permitting a small category of education benefits was perfectly legitimate. And I think most people interpreted that case to be a body blow to the NCAA's use of amateurism to justify its compensation limits. But on the back side of that, the NCAA turns around in this Johnson case, and just a couple of months ago, it files its substantive briefing in that case, and it asserts that the Austin court, a unanimous Supreme Court, essentially endorsed the NCAA's compensation limits that are unrelated to education, suggesting that these nil restrictions were legitimate, that their basic no pay for play prohibitions were legitimate, and that the Austin decision, the Supreme Court decision, rather than being a body blow to amateurism, the NCAA claimed that it actually enhanced their 
enforcement and infractions authority in these areas that aren't related to education. And that was just a breathtaking interpretation of Austin. And as I discussed in prior episodes, it raises the fundamental question of if the NCAA believes that that is the consequence of Austin, why the hell aren't they enforcing their own rules? And that brings me right to number eight on my top 10 list. And that is the death of the NCAA's credibility on infractions and enforcement. The Walter Byers 1950s fear-based enforcement and infractions model is just dead as a doornail. And that death has been a long, slow death. And I think it's really accelerated under Mark Emmert's leadership as the gulf between the reality of the business model and the NCAA's mythical fantasy world of amateurism, the student-athlete, and the collegiate model has become more obvious to people. But I think the NCAA and Mark Emmert's name, image, and likeness dump on June 30th of 2021 and this new interim policy, which provides very little meaningful guidance, has led to a name, image, and likeness marketplace that's governed by free market principles. And those free market principles are just making a mockery of the NCAA's claims that compensation limits and federal control of the name, image, and likeness market are necessary or we're going to see the fatal collapse of college sports. That's just a false narrative. And I said early on after that interim policy went into effect that the longer this nil market was in place without the NCAA being able to shut down the athletes' rights movement through protective federal legislation, the harder it was going to be to make a credible case that any protective federal legislation was necessary at all. And I think this constitutional makeover, which was an immediate response to this interim policy and the failure of Mark Emmert's NCAA to get anything done on nil, to get federal legislation that was going to basically immunize it from any responsibility and end the athletes' rights movement, and its failure to get antitrust immunity in Austin. All those things coming together led to a kind of a panic response. And so the Power Five comes in and they bully their way into control of the voluntary regulation of college sports. But they're stuck with what happened in the summer of 2021. And they're simply not enforcing their own rules. And they have the absolute power to do that. And I just want to go back to this new constitution that was ratified in January as it relates to the authority to enforce NCAA rules and to make new rules. So Article 4 is titled Rules, Compliance, and Accountability. And the section that deals with the divisional authorities says this, each division shall determine the methods of investigation and adjudication to hold accountable its members whose representatives engage in behaviors that violate the rules and principles approved by the membership. Each division, not the NCAA national office, not the NCAA infractions and enforcement staff. And then Article 4 lists six specific guiding principles and mandates for the divisional infractions and enforcement authorities and any new infractions and enforcement processes that the divisions wanted to set up. Uh, and I just want to reinforce the fact that the Power Five and the movers and shakers at the Power Five level have it within their authority now to completely disregard the NCAA infractions and enforcement process and set up their own apparatus. Division One has the absolute authority right now to step in and get any aspect of this nil marketplace that they deem objectionable under control, and they haven't done a damn thing. And all we've gotten instead are these limp-wristed guidance memos from the Division I Board of Directors, and notably not from the Board of Governors, because after this constitutional makeover, the Board of Governors doesn't have any authority to address these issues. Only the divisions do, which is why we've heard from the Division I Board of Directors, not the Board of Governors. And all we've gotten in those memos is a list of all of the existing NCAA regulations relating to boosters and no pay for play and all this stuff that the Division I Board of Directors claims are relevant to this no market, but then there's zero discussion of how those rules are going to be enforced or whether they're going to be enforced. And that's in large part because nobody's asking the right questions. And so what's the real reason that the Division I decision makers now aren't using their new authorities or aren't 
putting together an emergency name, image, and likeness infractions and enforcement investigation panel and adjudication panel. Why aren't they doing that? And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, I think this interim policy was so quickly put together and so poorly thought out that I don't think that Mark Emmert and the decision makers at that time were really thinking long term. And it also had a secondary effect that nobody's talked about. And that is that by liberalizing name, image, and likeness and intending not to enforce the name, image, and likeness restrictions of bylaw 12.5, the NCAA and their legal team in this house suit had a way to mitigate the potential damages in that case because the class of claimants, and that's a name, image, and likeness case. I've talked quite a bit about it. It's O'Bannon 2.0. And you have athletes claiming that their name, image, and likeness opportunities had been illegally restricted under fair competition laws, and they're seeking damages, which is really an important part of that lawsuit. And under federal antitrust laws, if you get a damage award, it's tripled. So we're talking a big number here, hundreds of millions, maybe even a, a billion plus damage award there. So the NCAA was trying to limit their damage and limit the size of the class of athletes who could be brought into that lawsuit. So the NCAA basically stopped the bleeding because there is a statute of limitations that applies to antitrust suits. I believe it's four years. So when that house suit was filed in, I believe it was June of 2020, the class of plaintiffs could only look back four years. And beyond that, the athletes didn't have a claim. It would be prohibited by the time limitations, the statute of limitations. And you could conceivably, though, have a growing class as the lawsuit moved forward and additional class members could come in. But you mitigate that potential additional liability by liberalizing your name, image, and likeness policies and allow these athletes to pretty much do what they want to in the market. So that was something that I think was a part of the thinking that nobody's really talked about here. And of course, that rationale has nothing to do with NCAA values. It's a, a litigation strategy. It is trying to limit their liability in that lawsuit. And then the second practical problem that the Division I decision makers have post-Constitution with these new infractions and enforcement authorities is that this really ran through the SEC. And I just don't think that if Greg Sankey and the Transformation Committee and the Division I Board of Directors, whose chair is Jerry Moorhead, the president of the University of Georgia, SEC, this has SEC all over it. And if the SEC interests on the governing boards at the NCAA and through this transformation committee came in and said, we're putting together an emergency infractions and enforcement team, and we're going to bring the hammer down on these egregious violations of name, image, and likeness, because we believe that these payments are recruiting inducements. We also think they're outright pay for play. And that was never intended in our liberalization of nil rules. If they came in and did that, and they started naming schools, power five schools, and said, we're sending in the secret investigators. And we're going to kick ass and take names, and then we're going to shut you down. Imagine what that would look like if th that authority ran through these SEC interests and they're trying to bring down a school from the Big Ten or the Big 12 or the ACC or the Pac-12 or even a kind of a weaker sister in the SEC. There would be mutiny. There would be hell to pay. And the truth of this takeover, this overreach, this power grab, ostensibly by the Power Five, but really in large part by the SEC, the extent of that power grab would be exposed for what it is. And I think that the SEC interests may have flown a little bit too close to the sun on this one. And the uh, Power Five decision makers now, the SEC decision makers in the NCAA and the NCAA itself can still fall back on that really pitiful crutch that, oh gosh, we just can't do anything because whatever we do, we're going to get sued. You're already being sued. You know, you're already being sued. So stand by your principles. Shut the hell up. Quit your bitching. Stand by your principles and let the chips fall where they may. That's not what's happening at all here. This is just a game. It's a game to these people. And the athletes are the real losers. All right. We're down to number seven on our top 10 list. And that is higher education surrendering to the entertainment industry. And I'm going to use as a primary example there, the Big 12's decision to hire 
Brett Yormark as the new conference commissioner to replace Bob Bowlesby. And Bowlesby came out of an academic setting. He was the AD at Stanford. Then he became the Big 12 conference commissioner. And we've seen a movement away from candidates for high decision-making seats in college sports that had some background in higher education into the entertainment industry. We had that really with the hiring of Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten. He came out of an NFL background, not really higher education. Then we had George Klievkoff taking over for Larry Scott in the Pac-12. He came out of MGM Resorts, for crying out loud. No experience in higher education. Same with your mark. And zero experience in higher education. He is an insider of the highest order in the broader entertainment industry. And I think that this signals really the death of any pretense of drawing a connection between these key decision-making chairs and the values of higher education. I did an episode on that, and your marks paid off in that context in bringing together the entertainment interests to benefit the Big 12's commercial interests and their branding interests and their reputational interests and all those things. And he put together a really nice package for the Big 12. And Kevin Warren obviously did the same thing for the Big 10, that multi-billion dollar deal with a variety of media partners that go outside of traditional linear TV broadcast media. And, you know, it remains to be seen if the Pac-12 is going to get as much value after the Klievkov hire. And Klievkov's operating with one arm tied behind his back because he just lost two of his most valuable assets, USC and, and UCLA, who are defecting to the Big Ten. But the broader point, from my standpoint, is that these issues say as much or more about the value system of higher education as they do about the value system of college sports, to the extent there's any a meaningful difference anymore, because it all goes to marketing and branding and money, 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 money. And I think uh, you're seeing that in some of the hires of university presidents and the incredible increase in the turnover at big time universities and the length of the tenure of university presidents. It is a dynamic market, and I'm saying that really as a criticism, because you just don't have the same level of commitment. It's, you know, what did you do for me yesterday? What are you going to do for me tomorrow? And I think that that is unhealthy, an unhealthy dynamic in higher education. A few episodes ago, I made the observation that you might start seeing that same kind of thinking coming into the athletics director hiring decisions and bringing in people who are more on the business side than the athletic and academic side and aren't really products of higher education and are coming in to maximize revenue, do all the things that are so important to athletics departments that I think is fundamentally inconsistent with the values of higher education. But that's where we are and where I think we are headed. All right, now we are down to number six. And coming in at number six is the death of revenue sharing. In, in college sports at the Power Five level and actually recognizing the true worth of the laborers in Power Five football and men's basketball and to a lesser extent women's basketball. One of those revenue sharing proposals that I talked quite a bit about, did a few episodes on, and I'm going to put those in the show notes, was on this a California revenue sharing bill. It's very simple very clean. And it basically allowed the athletes in any sport that generated net revenue to keep 50% of that. And then the rest would go to the school. And that just got shot down in the California legislature. And it died a quick and ugly death and was sent into California legislative purgatory (laughs) through this suspense file. And lobbying interests for the Power Five schools in the state of California, came in and just cut that thing off at the knees. And their rationale was all built around gender equity and this false, divisive, offensive, zero-sum equity world where these people are convincing decision makers in the state legislature in California. The same thing's happening in Congress. I'm going to talk about here in a second. But they were trying to convince these decision makers that In this zero-sum equity world, if we take some equity and give it to the athletes who actually provide all of the revenue and the value in big-time college sports, then we're stealing equity from downstream beneficiaries of that labor who are overwhelmingly white. It's a terrible, terrible argument, but it worked. 
because the gender equity argument is a strong immunity shield. And when you start talking gender equity, legislative decision makers dive under the nearest desk and they submit. And I think that's a terrible dynamic and it's false. It's based on a false belief system and false narratives that are purposefully put into the discussion to divide, not to look for a solution. And then you had a very similar type of revenue sharing provision that was in the original Athletes' Bill of Rights, which came out, I think it was in late 2020, if I'm not mistaken. And that bill was re-released in August of 2022. And that's the bill sponsored by a Democrat from New Jersey, Cory Booker, a senator, and Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, a Democrat as well. And the reason, according to Booker, that they pulled the revenue sharing component of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, which was very similar in how it operated to this California bill, was that they were getting pressure from gender equity interests. And they believed that it was becoming an issue of political viability and that the revenue sharing component simply wasn't going to be politically viable when it was set against, at a public relations level and a lobbying level, gender equity interests. And again, it's just a false divisive argument, but it won the day and that revenue sharing component is gone and I don't see it coming back. And when I discussed the federal bill, the Athletes' Bill of Rights and Cory Booker's justification for pulling that revenue sharing component, one of the points I made was that Booker was basically bidding against himself in, in these legislative proposals in, in the Senate and that by, by pulling the revenue sharing component, he was basically eliminating even a discussion on the merits of revenue sharing. So these lobbying interests have been so aggressive and so effective in using gender equity as a blunt force instrument to avoid even a conversation about these issues. And boy, that's a problem. That's not the way things are supposed to work in the United States of America. And the other thing that the death of revenue sharing means, I think, as a practical matter, is that those bills, the California bill and the Athletes' Bill of Rights, weren't going to confer upon the revenue athletes' employee status. So if we can't even get to revenue sharing, how the hell are we going to get to an employee status? And I also think that the death of revenue sharing is influenced by this propagandized belief that the in-system beneficiaries have put out into the public consciousness that now that athletes have name, image, and likeness, they don't need anything else. I call it the nil wall. And it's really misleading because it assumes that the name, image, and likeness market is going to solve all of the inequities in college sports and all of the issues in college sports. And it is just one tiny slice of the overall interest that athletes have in a complete overhaul of the relationship between the athletes and the institutional beneficiaries. All right, number five, I want to talk about the structural changes to Power Five football. And there were two major events that occurred this year that I think are really important. One was the Big Ten poaching USC and UCLA, and that happened in July. That was a big, bold move. And I did an episode on that and, and talked about all the reasons why that was such a big deal, particularly for athletes and what it would mean in their day-to-day -day lives. As is always the case, the uh, athletes didn't have a seat at the table. They didn't have a voice in this decision. It was about the money, the money, the money and market share and marketing and branding and all the reputational interests that are so important to these schools. And these decisions are made under the cover of darkness. We hear very little about them, very little public discussion. And then it's just announced and the mainstream media just rocks along and sweeps it into the NCAA Power Five big time college sports narratives. And then we move merrily along. <laughs> and we don't look back. And I guess this also brings in indirectly this poach, the USC-UCLA poach, brings in indirectly another story. I guess I would have included this in my honorable mention list. And that is that just a few weeks ago, the regional director of the National Labor Relations Board in Los Angeles said that a claim by athletes against USC and UCLA that they are indeed employees under the National Labor Relations Act and are therefore entitled to engage in collective bargaining, that if they can form a union, that that can go forward 
And I talked about that in the last couple of episodes. That's consequential, but it's still we're still in the early phases. And as I discussed, it, it remains to be seen how that's going to be handled, how long it's going to take. And by the time that thing's resolved, we could have yet another Congress in 2024 that's inclined to give the NCAA Power Five everything they want in terms of protective federal legislation. But as that charge goes forward, there's going to be an evidentiary hearing and this is purely fortuitous because that charge against USC and, U- and uh, UCLA was filed in February of 2022 with the NLRB. It wasn't until July that we learned that the Big Ten had poached USC and UCLA. On the question, the central question in this NLRB action of whether or not the athletes meet the common law definition of employee, their schedule. Is, is really important. That was important in the Northwestern case in 2014, where the regional board there said, yes, they are employees in terms of what they actually do. And this label, student athlete, was ridiculous. And it wasn't even a close call on the facts, the facts, not what the NCAA and Power Five want to label the relationship as quote unquote student athlete. But on that central question, this expansion to, to bring in to the Big Ten's footprint, schools that are as far away geographically as you can be in the continental United States could generate some really interesting evidence here. I am looking forward to seeing what kind of record is developed here and how the schools, USC actually, UCLA was put on the back burner. This is going forward through USC. And then of course the Pac-12 and the NCAA have been named as joint employers and the regional director is allowing that issue to move forward as well. But I can't wait to see what the Pac-12 and USC and the NCAA are going to say to defend this fundamental change in the scope of travel, the scope of time commitment, the impact on the athletes, study time on their social networks at home. They're going to be like a a traveling Broadway show. That's how I characterized that when I did that episode, when the news story broke in July. These athletes are going to be on the road 24-7, and there's simply no way from an evidentiary standpoint, at an evidentiary hearing, that the in-system stakeholder decision makers are going to be able to defend it. This just doesn't pass the blush test when it's run through the NCAA's education-based propaganda and the concern over the athlete well-being and the primacy of education. And then the other structural change, of course, is the expansion of the CFP. And again, you have this season being extended essentially by three weeks. We're going to have a month-long football tournament that's starting to look like March Madness and trying to capture some of the fan engagement elements of March Madness and the underdog narrative. And some teams are going to get a a shot in this 12-team format that will be deemed, quote-unquote, underdogs. But it it means essentially an entirely new extended postseason for the schools that qualify. That is based on one thing and one thing only, and that is money, money, money. Nobody really knows exactly how much additional revenue is going to be brought in. The early estimates are about half a billion dollars with the additional games, and that's going to start in 2024. So this CFP package is being put together on the fly, but once it's cemented in and then we have a renegotiation of the broadcast media deal now, but it's going to be bid out, I'm sure. There's no telling what that thing's going to be worth. It's going to be worth billions of dollars. And there has a complete disregard for the interests of the athletes. And when I was talking about the ACC's opposition to expansion, because this discussion goes back a couple of years, and the ACC came in when they were in this alliance with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten that was based on principle. And in fact, they were huddling in the corner because they were scared of the SEC. And then the Big Ten finally broke out with this bold move to get USC and UCLA. And the ACC was pounding its chest from a value standpoint and said, we oppose this on values. And this is a bad thing for our athletes. And we have so many other important things in college sports to look at before we even have a discussion about CFP expansion. And Jim Phillips, the commissioner of the ACC, claimed that he talked to 15 Clemson football players when he was making this values-based crusade against CFP expansion. And he said, boy, those players, they all told me to a person that they didn't want to play another postseason game. Now, of course, those Clemson players that actually participated in the CFP championship game, so they knew what it was like 
to go through a full regular season and then to have a couple of games tacked on. All those values just got flushed down the memory hole when that ACC Pac-12 Big Ten Alliance fell apart and the ACC standing there naked as a very vulnerable conference with a contract, an unfavorable contract that locks them in through 2036 with ESPN. And they don't have a lot of options here and they're losing ground. There's a perception that the ACC is losing ground to the other Power Five conferences from a revenue standpoint. So they will latch on to any additional revenue that they may be able to get. And so after all this values-based posturing, Phillips comes out and says, oh, wow, the CFP expansion is the greatest thing since sliced bread. We're so excited about it. We can't wait. And that kind of hypocrisy is standard fare. And to this day, nobody's called Phillips out on that profound hypocrisy. And nobody's asking the ACC university presidents and chancellors how they could throw those values and their own athletes under the bus like that on a dime to take the money. They don't have to answer those questions. All right. Number four on the top 10 of 2022. And that is the midterm elections. And that was so important because the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the NCAA, the lawyers, lobbyists, public relations people, the Power Five lawyers, lobbyists, public relations people, the Division One Board of Directors, the Transformation Committee, everybody was looking to the midterm elections. And they had their in-the-tank Republican senators, Roger Wicker, Tommy Tuberville, Lindsey Graham, Jerry Moran, Marco Rubio, on and on and on, just waiting to have the path to the holy grail of protective federal legislation that would shut down the athletes' rights movement. It was sitting right there on the table, and then the Republicans shot themselves in the foot. And they not only didn't regain control of the Senate, they lost the 50-50 Senate, where they had a power-sharing agreement and some built-in insulation against the Democrats going rogue on athletes' rights. That's not the case right now. And it's really been interesting to see some of the change in language and some of the alliances that are being suggested behind the scenes to try to keep some kind of legislative movement alive. But this was a big deal. And all you've heard from the NCAA and the Power Five and through a compliant sports media after the summer of 2021 is Congress, 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 Congress. And in that last episode, I talked about that theme in the rollout of Charlie Baker as the new NCAA president. He sounded just like Mark Emmert. And you had Emmert making a basically a lobbying stump speech in the press conference at the Final Four. Congress, 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 Congress. I did an episode on that. And I did a montage where I pulled Emmert's references to Congress just in that 40-minute interview. And I don't think I got them all. And that thing went on for a few minutes. Congress, Congress, Congress. That's where this began in 2019. And this is where it's going to end. And if the Republicans think they can tread water into 2024, they will do that. But the midterms, can't you can't underestimate what happened here. And, and after the elections in November, I said I was going to be paying real close attention to what key stakeholders were saying after they re-strategized the post-midterm. And I was going to be paying real close attention to how the media was covering those commentators. Because I've been making the argument for two years now since the Democrats took control of the Senate after the Georgia special elections in the 2020 cycle. And I've been saying, look, there's not as much difference between the Republicans and the Democrats as people want to believe. And that's in large part because some of these Democrats like Maria Cantwell and now Cory Booker, they want to be perceived as bipartisan. And one of the most recent developments that I find really distressing, and this was reported in Sportico just last week or the week before, I can't remember when, that there was this, it, it was referred to as the gang of four and those four, on the Democrat side, you have Cory Booker and Richard Blumenthal. And then on the Republican side, you have Tommy Tuberville and Roger Wicker. And that reference to the gang of four is a knockoff of the gang of eight, this group of supposedly centrist senators from both parties that wanted to look at some issues through a more moderate lens. And they were moving themselves away from the partisanship on either side of the aisle 
And they were really forcing the rest of Congress to work with them because they had a big enough block to have an influence on whether legislation passed or failed. And it was pitched as this great thing in American politics, and it gave these eight senators enormous power. And using that analogy, the sports debate now and the regulation of college sports and looking at who's in this gang of four is a real problem. And it's just one of these invisible ways that the media legitimizes people and narratives that are just corrosive. Tommy Tuberville and Roger Wicker are the athlete's worst nightmare. They are not moderate. They are defiant. They're militantly opposed to athletes having anything more than they have now. And they both want to shut down this athlete's rights movement, and they will go to any lengths to accomplish that goal. They are not moderate. And I have no idea what the hell Cory Booker and Richard Blumenthal are doing or what they're saying. But the very fact that we have that framing now, post-midterm, does not bode well for the athletes. So we'll be keeping a sharp eye on that in 2023. And then let's see, let's go to number three on the top 10 list of 2022. And that is the NCAA cracks the dam on sports betting. And I have done a number of episodes on this. And the lack of honest coverage on this single issue in the sports media or the broader mainstream media is really distressing here. This is big. This is big, big, big. And the NCAA did a 10-year deal with Genius Sports, who was in the sports gambling space. They are a data acquisition company. They take information from the original source, and then they sell it to sports books and casinos. Those deals are worth a lot of money. The NCAA jumped in bed with them before the ink was dry on a Supreme Court decision in 2018 that struck down a federal anti-gambling law. Now the states can get involved in gambling. And I think as of today... 31 states have legalized gambling in some form or another. And so you you have this rush, this gold rush mentality on sports betting and the values that the NCAA has built around its anti-gambling campaign have just been flushed down the memory hole. And then, of course, you had the Mid-American Conference jumping in head first this year and just before the March Madness tournament. You had an announcement that the MAC had done a deal with Genius Sports as well. And this was a deal for athlete information, including biometric information on the performance of the athletes' bodies. And we don't know the terms of those contracts. And there's been very, very little coverage. There's only one reporter, Eben Novi Williams from Sportico, who even covered the MAC deal. And it was very cursory. And I believe his coverage was neutral to favorable towards the normalization of college sports betting. But that's what this is. We're in the initial phases of the normalization process. And it's just a matter of time before conferences like the Big Ten and the SEC are doing deals with gambling companies for hundreds of millions of dollars. It could be even higher than that as the sports betting market matures and it becomes more lucrative. And the athletes don't have a seat at the table. They have zero voice in how their personal information is being sold to the gambling industry. And the sports media has just refused to look at that issue because they're so in bed with the powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And a lot of the main sports media outlets like ESPN and Sports Illustrated are already up to their eyeballs in sports betting. And you go to their websites and you're just assaulted with sports betting content and material and invitations to, to bet and all that stuff. And then just in the last month, there was a really important expose series by the New York Times on the influence peddlers in big gambling who have gone to state legislatures to try to strong arm them into passing laws that are favorable to sports betting, permitting sports betting, and then having laws that really can be as liberal as possible to allow the gambling interest to operate with more freedom in those states. But it was a really important expose and it focused on how dirty the lobbying campaign was. And when you read some of the anecdotal snippets of what these lobbyists were doing on behalf of big gambling, it's just stomach turning. They also did a piece as part of this expose on how sports betting interests have infiltrated college campuses and there are a handful of Power Five schools that have done deals with sports gambling 
companies and they have brought those companies on campus to entice students to bet. And they talk about the Michigan State, LSU, Colorado, Syracuse. I think there was another school may, that may have been involved as well. But it was just really distressing to see how quickly these institutions were to basically poison their campuses with sports betting and to create incentives for students to get hooked. You get hooked on betting and then you bring betting into the college sports environment through this normalization process. And then you basically have addicted fans. They call it fan engagement. No, <laughs> fan engagement to get more asses in the seats. We're going to do it by getting these people addicted to sports betting. And another component of that expose that was so important on this institution-specific connection to the gambling industry is that a lot of these decisions are made under the cover of darkness. And there are people on campus, decision makers on the academic side, who don't even know these deals exist because they're not subject to public records requests. These deals have been very cleverly disguised, and they, so far, have not been produced through public records requests, and the institutions are fighting it. And I think it's really bad when you have important decision makers and stakeholders on campus being surprised to learn that their institution is in bed with the gambling industry. It's having a direct negative impact on students. And you have that same lack of transparency when it comes to coaching contracts, shoe and apparel contracts, these contracts with these branding and marketing firms, and now with the name, image, and likeness industry and the connections between the university interests and these outside nil companies. It's all off the books. And one of the things that I think really needs to be a priority for athletes' rights in 2023 is transparency. And when I go through the federal bills that have been on the table and you look at how they have treated the transparency issue, there's been a movement since 2020 when the first bill was proposed by Marco Rubio in June of 2020, which was a train wreck for the athletes. But since then, there has been a movement away from transparency and any federal mandate that would force schools who are in deals like this or in business relationships like this to cough up the documents, cough up the decision-making process, cough up the facts and the rationale for their decision. We're moving away from that in this discussion, and I think that's a real problem. So now let's go to number two on the top 10 of 2022, and that is the historic explosion in the amount of money invested in sports, all sports at all levels. And of course, that includes college sports. Sports Illustrated in an end of the year article was trying to capture the essence of 2022, and they called it the year of the buck. And they did a story that talked about just how much money is coming into the sports marketplace. And you have additional sports products, you have additional revenue streams, and importantly, you have different types of investors in sports. And I'm going to try to land with college sports and the impact of some of these new revenue streams and new technologies. You, you can't really look at what's happening right now. And I think this is a difference of kind, not of degree. This isn't just more money in an old system. This is a new system that is evolving through different types of investors and importantly, through different types of technologies that are gonna open really unlimited revenue streams and investment potential and revenue production in all of these major sports products. And I'll just say, I got a subscription to Sportico, I don't know, about a year ago or so. And Sportico launched in 2020. It's a very young product. And as the name of the company suggests, it, it focuses on the business of big time sports worldwide, all sports. And obviously it does a lot of discussion about college sports because it's such an important part of the overall sports marketplace. And it's been really interesting to see just in the period that I've been reading Sportico, how many new issues pop up when it comes to exploiting revenue streams, finding new revenue streams, looking at new and innovative and creative ways to acquire money and the different types of investments that are coming in and the different types of investors 
that are getting involved in sports. And one of the overarching themes about the value of sports as a product is that is live sports. I talked about this in the really the second episode of this podcast. This is my 142nd episode coming up on two years with the podcast. And in that episode, I talked about the unique value of truly live programming. And sports is the last frontier for live programming. And consumers simply can't get enough of it. But in, in looking at the evolution of these articles in Sportico, it's almost overwhelming. And it's almost impossible to keep up with because the volume of money is expanding exponentially and the ways that it's coming into the system is different. And the technologies that are driving new revenue streams are becoming frighteningly efficient. <laughs> and, and there's a, a big brother component to how I see the evolving sports marketplace and the use of technologies that will have machines thinking for us and providing content almost in real time to suit our individualized consumer needs and our increasingly short attention spans. But let me just go through a list of some of the things that just pop out to me in looking back on 2022 and how important this shift in the marketplace is and in the overall value of the marketplace. I went to Sportico's About page, and it's very brief. They're a Penske media company. I think Penske owns Rolling Stone, that kind of thing. They have some interesting holdings, and I like Sportico. You know, Sportico is very, a very good resource for what's happening in sports, and it's a good way for me to identify themes that keep coming up again and again, and how Sportico as a media outlet, because they're also offering editorial, they're offering commentary, they're trying to frame some of this business activity in, in a values-based kind of market analysis and the values of the market participants. But th their bread and butter increasingly are these really complex new sports investments and investors and products. But here's what they say. They say that launched in June of 2020, Sportico is the default resource for professionals seeking the latest and highest quality news and information in the $500 billion worldwide sports industry. With a robust digital platform, newsletters, and events, Sportico delivers breaking headlines and analysis, championing the innovation and creativity that will change not only the business of sports, but the world. That's a bold statement right there. But they're looking at this overall sports marketplace worldwide at half a trillion dollars. And I don't know how people come up with those numbers. You know, I hear that number. I hear that $500 billion number. And I think about the numbers that are tossed around in terms of the overall value of the college sports marketplace. And there have been estimates from 10 to 15 to 20 billion. And I have no idea how numbers like that are arrived at. And when you look at the sheer volume of market activity and the innovation that's going into sports broadcasting and the new revenue streams. I think it's almost impossible to put a number on it, but I think you should err on the side of a higher number you know, because I think that the overall value and the true revenue streams that are running through college sports and are being built around college sports right now are understated. And I don't think that we are really accounting for that in this grand discussion about the relationship between the laborers on the one hand and then the beneficiaries of that labor. And when the NCAA and Power Five and a compliant sports media talk about what the athletes have, they're speaking in terms of the nothing that they had since the 1950s and these marginal enhancement of benefits over the years, like the full cost of attendance scholarship. And I've talked all about that stuff and how so much of that really was the product of federal antitrust litigation and external regulatory threats pressuring the NCAA and Power Five to offer just a little more, not much. Uh, you know, uh, Taylor Branch in that 2014 hearing in the Senate, he's a civil rights historian. He testified at a hearing in Senate Commerce in 2014, and he described the additional benefits that the athletes got through autonomy legislation, like the full cost of attendance scholarship, as tips that a waiter m might get. That's how we have looked at the interests of the athletes, and we've isolated what they are worth and what they have and what they should have going forward through that very narrow lens of what they didn't have before and not in terms of what they're actually worth or in the context of what 
I'm talking about here in item number two, the expanding value of the college sports marketplace. You never hear an in-system stakeholder beneficiary talk about the athlete's interest and the benefits that they get in the context of this exponentially expanding sports marketplace. Nobody's talking about what's happening right now in real time. In this explosion, this gold rush, this race to capitalize on new revenue streams. And I think when you look at just this crazy increase in the amount of money in the system, it really points out the unfairness of what the NCAA and Power Five are trying to do right now to get a bill from Congress that will forever cement in the limits on compensation. So you, you have this market that is changing in fundamental ways and growing in just breathtaking ways and at a breathtaking pace. Yet the NCAA and Power Five are saying, we're not going to look at the interests and rights the athletes might have in these new products, these new revenue streams, the new intellectual property that's being developed around college sports. We're going to cement in these limits now forever, forever. And when you look at what's happening in the market right now, that makes these compensation limits even more unfair, even more indefensible, even more unconscionable, because we can't predict right now what this college sports marketplace is going to be in five years or 10 years. But those compensation limits, once they're fixed in, they are there for good. So let me talk a little bit about some of the things that happened this year that just jumped out to me as evidence of this gold rush and the increasing value of live TV content. So you had the Big Ten doing a billion dollar a year deal. And what's important about that deal is that it wasn't just based on uh, linear TV, like the existing cable market, for example. They're bringing in some streaming companies. I don't know, maybe it was Apple. You have a streaming market that's evolving side by side with a pretty well-evolved linear TV market. And there's been uh, a suggestion that linear TV is dying. These new broadcast media deals don't really support that. I think linear TV is still doing okay because of its emphasis on live sports program. But then you also have the streaming markets. You have Apple, Amazon, YouTube TV, and Netflix all trying to get into the market in one way or another. You've seen the NFL getting into streaming. And, and I think that the, those companies are deciding whether they want to jump in head first or whether they just want to stick their big toe in the water. Netflix, I think, was looking at some sports products and they pulled back. They just don't think they're ready for that in their business model. But that's, uh, that's an important burgeoning market. And then we have had a frenzy of investment activity. I can't tell you how many articles I have read in sports business journals, not just Sportico, but other outlets that I subscribe to, other publications, online publications that I subscribe to. They talk about the amount of venture capital that's coming into the sports economy and the amount of private equity that's coming into the sports economy and the development of new vertical markets, uh, which are kind of niche markets tied to a specific product that relate to sports. And some of them are targeting college sports. And a good example of that is the generative artificial intelligence market. And there's a company, I think it's called WSC, associated with Google, that is starting to partner with the purported owners of the intellectual property in college sports to use generative AI, which is content creating artificial intelligence. And there are a lot of programs out there, like a lot of text editing software now is done by artificial intelligence. And I, I use some of that stuff and it's interesting and there's some blind spots there, but it is evolving and evolving quickly. And so this generative AI can take suggestions and then literally generate content, written content. Now they're moving into imaging. And what this WSC company wants to do and what I think where this market is headed is that they are going to be able to custom develop generative artificial intelligence content to micro markets or even to individuals. This is custom designed content to appeal to the individualized interests of sports fans. And so you're following a particular player and you want as much information as you can get about that player. This AI can be constantly searching 
to try to get immediate and almost in real time content delivered to you so you can know what your favorite player is doing. And the potential for that is unlimited. And if the intellectual property of athletes is being used in that way, in that really specialized, focused way, and those revenue streams just go on steroids. The obvious question from a market standpoint and also from a fairness standpoint is what do the athletes get from that? The that use of their intellectual property. And the honest answer is whatever the NCAA, the Power Five and the institutions decide to allow the athletes to get from that kind of revenue stream and new technology. Because if they get these three federal protections and immunities that they've been seeking that would shut down any pathway for athletes to use federal courts or state legislatures or administrative agencies to pursue their legal rights, then they're at the mercy of people who are untouchable and can do whatever they want to with that intellectual property without fear of any legal liability. And earlier in the episode, I I talked about the shrinking attention spans of fans and consumers and how the beneficiaries in the marketplace are going to go about capturing fan engagement. And the market's changing rapidly. The consumer base is younger and younger and their expectations and their relationship to live sports programming are much different. And it's going to be a much more competitive attention marketplace for you know these new technologies and the broadcast media outlets and the streaming services. They have to find new ways to hold the attention of younger viewers. That's going to be with more focused content, shorter form content. And we may get to a point, some commentators have suggested this, where the goal isn't to try to bring fans in to watch an entire game, just bring them in long enough to sell them all these ancillary bells and whistles in real time, whether it's sports betting or whether it's this individualized content, whatever it takes to keep the eyeballs on the product long enough to sell the advertising and to get the data and to keep the gravy train moving. I think that's where we're headed. And that's an entirely new and different market. So what we're doing right now is we're going to fix the athletes' rights in really a 1950s business model while we're moving into a new frontier. In, in our relationship to technology and the relationship between fans and the sports that they follow. And I'm going to land with my number one of 2022. And guess what? It is the same number one that I had in 2021. And it is the games go on. The games go on. In all of this fear-mongering, and it has just reached a crescendo with the response to the new name, image, and likeness market. The sky is falling. The fatal collapse of college sports. When you listen to Tommy Tuberville or Roger Wicker or Nick Saban or Greg Sankey or pick your in-system spokesperson who's benefiting from the status quo, the sky is always falling. And this time it's real. This time it's really going to happen. And decision makers respond to that, talked about that, in this rollout of Charlie Baker as the new NCAA president. And what Charlie Baker and Linda Livingstone did in that rollout was to pit the interests of revenue-producing African-American laborers in big-time football and big-time men's basketball against the interests of an army of white stakeholders, ranging from downstream beneficiaries of football and men's basketball labor in Olympic and non-revenue and women's sports, to sports fans, to alumni. And the suggestion, of course, is that the NCAA and the Power Five, if they don't get these federal protections and immunities that would shut down the athletes' rights movement, then sports as we know them will come to a fatal collapse. Then you say, why are they still making that argument? They've been making it for decades and it hasn't come to pass. The reason is that it still has value. And I think that's evidenced by what happened with the California Revenue Sharing Bill and the Athletes' Bill of Rights Revenue Sharing component. You just make those arguments, you predict that the sky's going to fall and the primary victims are going to be women and non-revenue athletes, then you get decision makers scared. And when you get them scared, they do what you want them to do. And that same 
templates being applied to this new transfer market. We're not looking at data. We're not looking at data in either of those markets. Instead, we are responding to sophisticated, well-coordinated, 24-7 fear-mongering campaigns from people who are benefiting from the status quo. And those fear-mongering narratives are offered in the face of a tidal wave of evidence that not only has college sports not come to a fatal collapse with the liberalization of compensation limits or transfer rules, but we are in a historic bull market that is unstoppable. It's a juggernaut paying revenue-producing athletes in football and basketball the fair value of their labor. It doesn't even rise to the level of pocket change in a $500 billion a year worldwide sports marketplace. All right. So with that, I'm going to wrap this thing up and wish you all a happy new year, safe and happy new year. And I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 